0: Welcome to the 80's Arcade Podcast. Here's your host, Bob Johnson.
1: Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the 80's Arcade Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Johnson. This episode's game is Qbert. Let's start with a little technical information. The main CPU is an i8086 running at 5 MHz. The sound CPU is a MOS Technology M6502 running at 894.886 kHz. The sound chips are listed as a DAC, which I'm assuming is a digital-to-analog converter, and a Voltrax SC-01 speech synthesizer chip. Control is provided by a four-way joystick turned at a 45-degree angle. Qubit has eight dip switches, of which five are used. Switch one is demonstration mode. On is infinite lives. Off is normal play. In demonstration mode, set to on. Not only we have infinite lives, but you can progress through the rounds by hitting either start button. Switch 2 is a track play. On is no sound, off is sound. Switch 3 is normal slash free. On is free play, off is normal game. Switch 4 is game mode. On is cocktail, off is an upright. Switch 5 is unused. Switch 6 controls the kicker. On is kicker on, off is kicker off. And Switch 7 and 8 are both unused. By default in MAME, Qbert's and many other games' service menu can be normally accessed by toggling the F2 button. Qbert has 8 different menu entries in its service menu, including my two favorite, number 4, Options and Parameters. And if you want to rock out Qbert style, pick number 7, Sound Test. All 8 menu choices are worth at least a go just to see what tests and options are available in Qbert. Cubit is an arcade game developed and published by Gottlieb in October of 1982. Its designation from Gottlieb is GV-103A. It was licensed to Konami for distribution in Japan in February of 1983. It is a 2D action game with puzzle elements that use isometric graphics to create a pseudo-3D effect. The object is to change the color of every cube in the pyramid by hopping on top of each cube while avoiding obstacles and enemies. The game was created by Warren Davis and Jeff Lee. As we will see later, there are several versions of who did what in Qbert. is known for certain is that Lee designed the title character and Davis coded the game. There isn't any stealing of the limelight in either of the origin stories. Rather, it seems that like many of us, as we age, we jumble memories and remember things differently from what really happened. Even Khan Yabumoto, one of Gottlieb's early video game programmers, Remembers things just slightly different from both Warren and Jeff. Most likely, the origin of Qbert lies somewhere in between both stories and will never be definitely known. Qbert was well received in arcades and among critics. The game was Gottlieb's fourth and most successful video game and among the most recognized brands from the golden age of arcade games. It has been ported to numerous platforms. The success resulted in sequels and the use of the character's likeness in merchandising, such as appearances on lunchboxes, toys, and an animated television show. The character Kubert became known for his swearing, an incoherent phrase of synthesized speech generated by the speech synthesizer chip, and a speech balloon of nonsensical characters that appear when he collides with an enemy. Because the game was developed during the period when Columbia Pictures owned Gottlieb, the intellectual rights to Kubert remained with Columbia even after they divested themselves of Gottlieb's assets in 1984. Therefore, the rights have been owned by Sony Pictures Entertainment since its parent Sony acquired Columbia in 1989. Cubert appeared in Disney's computer animated film Wreck It Ralph under license from Sony and later appeared in Columbia's live action film Pixels in 2015. Development Cubert was developed under the project name Cubes, Cubes. Wikipedia has a concept sketch illustrating an earlier outline of the game. The pyramid in Cubert's movements are already very similar to the final product, but it still shows a shooting mechanism which was not implemented in the final game. It also shows a sole enemy type not in the final game. It appears to me that the unused enemy bears a striking resemblance the wrong way. Could this little guy have been a precursor the wrong way? Either way, one important difference between this unused enemy and all other enemies in Q-Bert, is this enemy is shown walking on all three sides of a cube that are shown. That is, he can walk like Hubert, and also walk like Ugg and Wrongway. Unfortunately, the only copy of the picture I could find on the net is too small to read the notes written around the pyramid. While we don't know anything about this unused enemy, we do know the names Slick and Sam were a play on the phrase Spick and Span, with Sam being named after co-worker Sam Russo. Concept Kubert's programmer and co-developer Warren Davis Warren Davis wrote that he was inspired by a pattern of hexagons implemented by fellow Gottlieb developer and Mad Planets designer Kan Yabumoto He says, I was new to Gottlieb in 1982 and had learned the ropes by helping one of our programmers with his game. I was looking for a game of my own to do when I saw that another programmer, Kan Yabumoto who would later do Mad Planets, had filled the screen with hexagons that consisted of three differently colored diamonds. If you chose the colors right, each hexagon seemed to be a three-dimensional cube. Can had filled the screen to its edges with this pattern, but for some reason when I looked at it, I envisioned a lot of the hexagons removed, so it looked like a pyramid of cubes floating in space. Then I thought of balls bouncing down the pyramid. This was really a thought of convenience since every time a ball landed, It had two choices of which way to bounce. Two choices meant one bit. And that meant in one bite, I could determine a ball's path. It was a purely scientific endeavor since I wanted to learn to program randomness and gravity. It was a nice exercise and nothing more. He goes on to say, Once I programmed the pyramid with balls randomly bouncing and falling, people started to comment on how cool and three-dimensional it looked. So I kept playing with it. Jeff Lee had created a bunch of characters thinking they might possibly be used in a game. I thought the orange one with a big nose would make a good player character. He looked kind of helpless. Jeff had originally intended that he would shoot out of his nose. He even wrote up a game description and called it Snots and Boogers. However, I liked the idea of the player hopping around trying to avoid bouncing obstacles. Also, I was trying to do something a little different, and there were a lot of games then that involved shooting. Still, a few people tried to get me to have the character shoot. I resisted, but I think there were people at Gottlieb who always thought I would eventually put that in. Because of that, the name Snots and Boogers was somehow attached to it, mostly as a joke. But the proponents of flying snot bombs were ultimately disappointed. My name for the game during its development was The Cube Game. I know, pretty boring. The game Cubert came much later and is a story in itself. It is also said that Warren Davis who at the time was a programmer hired to work on the action game Protector, noticed Lee's ideas and asked if he could use them to practice programming randomness and gravity as game mechanics. Thus, he added balls that bounced from the pyramids top to bottom. Because Davis was still learning how to program game mechanics, he wanted to keep the design simple. He also felt games with complex control schemes were frustrating and wanted something that could be played with one hand. To accomplish this, Davis removed the shooting and changed the objective to saving the protagonist from danger. As Davis worked on the game one night, Gottlieb's vice president of engineering, Ron Waxman, noticed him and suggested to change the color of the cubes after the game's character had landed on them. Davis implemented a unique control scheme, a four-way joystick was rotated 45 degrees to match the directions of Cubert's jumping. Staff members at Gottlieb urged for a more conventional orientation, but Davis stuck to his decision. Davis remembers starting programming in April 1982, but the project was only put on schedule as an actual product several months later. Cubert's artist and co-developer Jeff Lee, in a different telling, the initial concept began when artist Jeff Lee drew a pyramid of cubes inspired by M.C. Escher. Lee felt the game could be derived from the artwork and created an orange armless main character. The character jumped along the cubes and shot projectiles called mucus bombs from a tubular nose at enemies. Enemies included a blue creature, later changed purple and named Wrong Way, and an orange creature, later changed green and named Sam. Leah had drawn similar characters since childhood, inspired by characters from comics, cartoons, Mad Magazine, and by artist Ed Big Daddy Roth. Hubert's design later included a speech balloon with a string of nonsensical characters, at sign, exclamation point, pound sign, question mark, at sign, exclamation point which Lee originally presented as a joke. He says, Sometime in 1982, one day I was tooling around with background tiles on the blue box. Being a fan of the great Dutch artist MC Escher, the master of optical illusions, I constructed a stack of triad-based cubes. Admiring my derivative of handiwork, it struck me. There is a game in here somewhere. The pseudo-3D look was quite compelling. Nothing like it was out there, but not for long. By the time Cuba was released, I believe Zaxxon made its debut. I thought it would be an interesting premise to populate the cubic pyramid with critters, which would exist on the three intersecting planes, and began writing up gameplay documents. I also created a little orange critter with a large nose, from which he would shoot missiles at his opponents. Two feet and no arms. I dubbed the game Snots and Boogers. Enter Warren Davis. Gottlieb had hired Warren recently. I believe he had been previously with Bell Labs. One day I was putting the characters up on the pyramid when along came Warren. He took a liking to the picture on the blue box. He also thought it had possibilities as a game and asked me if he could use it. I said sure, and he did. Warren recalls, I saw a screen which had the hexagonal effect Khan was working on, filled from edge to edge with hexagons colored so as to appear like cubes. From that I saw an image in my mind of the pyramid of cubes and balls bouncing down on it and then worked to implement that. That was before there was a game or cube programme was programmed in. It was really a programming test for me. I was still pretty new to games, and I needed a simple programming task so I could teach myself animation, gravity, and randomness. That was where the balls came from. I was trying a random number generator, and the balls randomly picked which way to bounce from each bit of the 8-bit random number. And I also was learning to program gravity as the balls bounced from level to level. Kan Yabumoto presently at Pixel Lab, was another of Gottlieb's early video game programmers. His recollection is that I had done a study of the cubes on the Apple, which I don't remember at all. He then put up similar cubes on the real hardware. Con notes, the aspect ratio was different, and the way I drew them was pretty much the only way to make the cubes look right based on the limitation of the way the hardware worked. That's why it was vertical. Warren came up with the notion that as the critter jumped from cube to cube, the colors should change. Once all the colors were changed, that rack was ended. It was a brilliant notion. I wish I had thought of it. As you can see, while all three recollections differ in many ways, some quite major, the general story of QBert follows through all three stories. Title The Gottlieb staff had difficulty naming the game. Aside from the project name Cubes, it was untitled for most of the development process. Lee's title for the initial concept, Snots and Boogers, was rejected, as was a list of suggestions compiled from company employees. According to Davis, Vice President of Marketing Howie Rubin championed at sign, exclamation point, pound sign, question mark, at sign, exclamation point as a title. Although staff members argued it was silly and would be impossible to pronounce, a few early test models were produced with at sign, exclamation point, pound sign, question mark, at sign, exclamation point as a title on the unit's artwork. During a meeting, Hubert, spelled H U B E R T, was suggested, and a staff member thought of combining Cubes and Hubert into spelled Cubert, spelled C U B E R T. Art director Richard Tracy changed the name to Cubert with a hyphen, and the hyphen was later changed to an asterisk, and thus the name Cubert was born. In retrospect, Davis expressed regret for the asterisks because he felt it prevented the name from becoming a common crossword term and it is a wildcard character for search engines. Testing. As development neared the production stage, Cubit underwent location tests in local arcades under its preliminary title at sign exclamation point palm sign question mark at sign exclamation point before being widely distributed. According to Jeff Lee, His oldest written record attesting to the game being playable as at sign exclamation point pound sign question mark at sign exclamation point in a public location, a Brunswick bowling alley, dates back to September 11th, 1982. Gottlieb also conducted focus groups in which the designers observed players through a one-way mirror. The control scheme received a mixed review during play testing. Some players adapted quickly, while others found it frustrating. Initially, Davis was worried players would not adjust to the different controls. Some players would unintentionally jump off the pyramid several times, reaching a game over in about 10 seconds. Players, however, became accustomed to the controls after playing several rounds of the game. The different responses to the controls prompted Davis to reduce the game's level of difficulty, a decision he would later regret. Release A copyright claim registered with the United States Copyright Office by Gottlieb on February 10th nineteen eighty three states the date of publication of Cubert is october eighteenth, nineteen eighty two. Video Games magazine reported that the game was sold directly to arcade operators at its public showing at the AMOA show on november eighteenth through the twentieth, nineteen eighty two. Gottlieb made approximately thirty thousand units and offered the machines for two thousand six hundred dollars per unit. Reception Qbert was Gottlieb's only video game that gathered huge critical and commercial success, selling around 25,000 arcade cabinets. Cabaret and cocktail versions of the game were later produced. The machines have since become collector's items. The rarest of them are the cocktail versions. When the game was first introduced to a wider industry audience at the November 1982 AMOA show, it was immediately received favorably by the press. Video Games Magazine placed Qbert first in this list of top 10 hits describing it as the most unusual and exciting game of the show and stating that no operator dared to walk away without buying at least one. The coin slot reported Gottlieb's game Cubert was one of the stars of the show and predicted that the game should do very well. Contemporary reviews were equally enthusiastic and focused on the uniqueness of the gameplay and audio-visual presentation. Roger C. Sharp of Electronic Games considered it a potential arcade award winner for Coin-Op Game of the Year, praising innovative gameplay and outstanding graphics. William Broha of Creative Computing Video and Arcade Games described the game as an all-around winner that had many strong points. He praised a variety of sound effects and graphics, calling the colors vibrant. Broha lauded QBird's inventiveness and appeal, stating that the objective was interesting and unique. Michael Blanchett of Electronic Fun suggested the game might push Pac-Man out of the spotlight in 1983. Neil Tester of Video Games also likened Qbert to Japanese games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong due to the focus on characters, animation, and storylines, as well as the absence of violence. Computer and Video Games Magazine praised the game's graphics and colors, however considered the swearing a negative, but still felt the character was appealing. Electronic Games awarded Cubert Most Innovative Coin-Op Game of the Year. Video Game Player called it the funniest game of the year among arcade games in 1983. In the years following its release, Cubert inspired many other games with similar concepts. The magazines Video Games and Computer Games both commented on the trend with features about Cubert-like games in 1984. They listed Mr. Cool by Sierra Online, Frostbite by Activision, and Cube Bopper by Accelerated Software, among many others, as being Cubert like. Now let's delve a little into the looks and sounds of Cubert. Cabinet and Marquee. Since most people have already seen a Cubert cabinet, and if you haven't, there are hundreds of images online, I will keep the description short. Cubert has bright yellow sides with the rest of the cabinet painted black. The side art has four cubes, the Cubert at the bottom being hit by a purple ball and swearing a standard swear of at sign exclamation point pound sign question mark at sign exclamation point. Coilie is at the very top looking mean as ever. Interestingly enough, this scenario can never happen in the game, as there is only ever one coily or purple ball on the screen at a time. The bezel has images of every character in Qbert lining the left and right sides of the bezel. On the left side of the control panel is a short description of how to play Qbert and on the right side is a who's who and a what's what, along with what they do. Right smack in the middle is the joystick, with diagonals showing how to move. And immediately below that is a C 1982 D period Gottlieb and Company. And below that, two rows of cubes. On the front of the control panel is, from left to right, a falling red ball, Cubert, the word Cubert, Sam, and finally Slick jumping down. Some cuberts came with a coin door that had a raised rectangle with rounded edges, with the name Gottlieb centered on it. Several people have mentioned that this was only on early run cabinets, but I couldn't find a solid evidence for that one way or the other. And finally, what you've been waiting for, the marquee. There are two different marquees: the normal cubert one and the rare swearing one. Both look nearly identical with a few differences. Both have a group of cubes on the left and the right side of the marquee. On the left side is Kubert getting beamed in the head with a purple ball. On the right side is Coily and Sam sitting on some cubes. At the very bottom, in the middle, in blue letters, is the word Gottlieb T.M. Here's where the differences start. The drawings of Kubert and the purple ball look very similar, but there are definitely two different drawings. In the swear marquee, which only a few real ones were made, it appears to me in all the pictures I saw that the swear marquee Kubert is just the side art Kubert flipped and other parts rearranged. Further differences of Cubert between the versions are, in the swear version, there are longer fall lines to the purple ball, and the smack on top of Qbert's head almost looks like hair, whereas the standard marquee Cubert has short fall lines and the smack is more line-like. In the standard marquee, Cubert's eye pupils are much bigger than the swear version. Finally, in the swear version, in the middle of the marquee is a big speech balloon, with Cubert saying, at sign exclamation point pound sign question mark at sign exclamation point. Whereas in the standard version, in the middle is the name Cubert in big letters, and Cubert has a small speech balloon saying his famous catchphrase. The cabinet graphics were done by Terry Dozer's app, who would also do the cabinet graphics for Cubert's release sequel, Cubert's Cubes. Audio. Cubert's audio was done by David D. Thiel. Who is also responsible for audio on many other pinball and arcade games such as Mad Planets, the Indiana Jones Pinball Table, and the unreleased sequel to Qbert, Faster, or Harder, More Challenging Qbert? David also did the audio on the previously unreleased game Arena, which remained unreleased until 2016 when Galloping Ghost Arcade was able to repair a non working Arena PCB and set it up in a custom cabinet. That in itself is an entire story. According to David Thiel, we wanted the game to say, you have gotten 10,000 bonus points. And the closest I came to it after an entire day would be bogus points. Being very frustrated with this, I said, well, screw it. What if I just stick random numbers in a chip instead of all this highly authored stuff? What happens? It's been said that Theo also felt the incoherent speech was a good fit for the at sign exclamation point, pound sign question mark, at sign exclamation point, in Qbert's speech balloon. However, given the previous quote, it makes you wonder if that is really the case or if he was just saying that to make history match up. Theo was able to get Qbert to say two phrases, hello, I'm turned on, when the game is powered on, and bye bye, when you finish entering your initials on the high score table. One can only wonder what David would have made Qbert say if only more advanced tools were available at the time for the chip. I, for one, would love to hear Kubert say, bogus points. A MOS Technology 6502 chip generates the sound effects, and a speech synthesizer by Votrex generates QBert's incoherent expressions. The audio system uses 128 bytes of RAM and 4 kilobytes of erasable programmable ROM to store the sound data and code to implement it. Like other Gottlieb games, the sound system was thoroughly tested to ensure it would handle daily usage. In retrospect, David Thiel commented that such testing minimized time available for creative designing. Possibly, as part of this testing, there is a built in sound test in Qbert's service menu. There are 41 spots that it cycles through, yet only 36 of those spots make sound. To quote the manual, the count on the screen represents the binary signal code that will be sent to the A6 sound/slash speech board through the six sound input lines on the A6J1 connector. When executing the sound test sequence, there will be no sounds produced on counts 16, 29, 30, 31, and 32. There are no sounds assigned to these numbers. I couldn't find why there was no sound assigned to these numbers, and doing the conversion from decimal to binary, none of the binary numbers looked unusual. However, to highlight how emulation is great, while not always 100%, several sounds are not generated when running the sound test that should be generated, notably 17 through 22, 28, and 36. Following a suggestion from technician Rick Teeger, A pinball machine component was included to make a loud sound when a character falls off the pyramid. The sound is generated by an internal coil that hits the interior of a cabinet wall. Foam padding was added to the area of contact on the cabinet. The developers felt the softer sound better matched a fall rather than a loud knocking sound. The cost of installing foam, however, was too expensive and the padding was omitted. Gameplay Like many games, Qbert can be said to let the player have a different number of Q at the start of the game. Players can start with 3, 4, or 5 Qberts, depending on how generous the arcade owner is feeling that day. What many people don't know is that Cubert has two difficulty levels, normal and hard. Let's start our dive into the gameplay with a quick introduction to our hero. Qbert, the orange Nazra himself. Qbert must bounce around each pyramid, changing the top surface color to the gold color for the level. Cubert must not fall off any edge of the pyramid, nor should he come in contact with anything red or purple. However, Cubert can safely touch anything primarily green in color, and in a pinch, Cubert can jump on any of the rotating discs that hover to the side of the pyramid and ride them to safety at the top. The game is played using a single diagonally mounted four-way joystick. The player controls Cubert, who starts each game at the top of a pyramid made of 28 cubes and moves by hopping diagonally from cube to cube. Landing on a cube causes it to change color and changing every cube to the target color allows the player to progress to the next round. It should be noted that the game has 9 levels with each level consisting of 4 rounds and that the game stops at level 9 and just repeats level 9 rounds 1 through 4. Although it appears to conflict with information on the internet, the Cubert manual indicates that level 5 round 4 is the last unique round with 5 discs, 5,000 round completion bonus points, and all characters will appear in the round. From there until level 9, round 4, the game only continues to get harder and faster, but nothing else changes. At the beginning, jumping on every cube once is enough to advance. In level 2, each cube must be hit twice to reach the target color. Starting on level 3, cubes change color every time Cubert lands on them, even once the cube has reached its target color. Jumping off the pyramid results in Hubert's death. Oh. Hey, fuckie, you're right. The player is impeded by several enemies introduced gradually to the game. First up are balls. Who doesn't like balls? Kubert, that's who. Balls. Red balls are the first obstacle that Hubert encounters. They rain down from the top of the screen and land on one of the two blocks below the top cube. From there, they randomly bounce to the right or to the left until they reach the bottom and drop off the screen any contact with Qbert causes them to lose one life. Beginning in the third stage, a green ball may appear and follow the same behavior as the red ball. However, if Qbert touches the green ball, time will freeze for a few seconds, allowing Qbert to jump around the pyramid in relative safety. The green balls are worth going out of your way to collect. Coily. Kubert's primary nemesis, Coily is a big purple snake that bounces around the pyramid in an attempt to capture Qbert. However, Cubert begins life as a purple ball. The ball falls from the top along with the red balls and descends to the bottom just as red balls do, but unlike red balls, they rest on one of the bottom blocks until it hatches and coyly jumps out. As soon as he appears, coyly immediately seeks Cubert out and jumps in his general direction. The only way to remove him from the screen is to lure him near a disc and jump onto the disc when he is about to catch you. He will jump after you and fall to his death removing him from the board, until the next purple ball falls from the sky. Ugg and Wrongway are two purple creatures that hop along the sides of the cube in an extra manner. These two troublemakers begin appearing on level 1, round 3. Wrongway appears from the lower left corner and proceeds to the right, using the left faces of each cube as he steps. Conversely, Ugg appears from the lower right side and proceeds to the left. When they reach the opposite side, they leap off and disappear, but another will soon follow behind them. Touch either of these troublemakers and it's for Qbert. Many players have problems figuring out where Ugg and Wrongway are going to move next, but according to my fellow podcasters, Shawnee C and Jimmy G at the Pie Factory podcast, Joystick Magazine states that once you realize that Ugg and Wrongway see the pyramid from their own perspectives, it is easier to see where they might go. That is, the top of their pyramid is the lower left or lower right bottom of your pyramid, and they can only go diagonally down. While I found a few issues of joystick magazine that covered Qbert, I couldn't find any mention of this. I did, however, verify that Sean and Jim were right by watching several playthroughs on YouTube. Slick and Sam, also on level one, round three, Slick and Sam make their initial appearance and are present in every stage thereafter. Slick and Sam are two green creatures that attempt to undo the hard work that Cubert has accomplished by reverting the color of the cubes they jump on back to their original colors. Since they are green, Kubert can safely touch them in order to remove them from the stage and deter further color changes on their part. Discs These are Cubert's only means of defense and his only offense. By jumping on any available disc, it will lift him to the very top of the pyramid and drop him off before disappearing. As mentioned before, If Coily is close behind Kubert when he jumps on a disc, Coily, not being the brightest snake in a video game, will jump off the pyramid and disappear for a while. No additional enemies will appear on the stage while Qbert is riding the disc, generally resetting the stage for your next trip down. The game manual has a table listing just which enemies appear on which stage, but in the interest of not putting your listeners to sleep, I will forego listing all 17 entries and leave it to you as homework to read if you are so inclined. Strategies here we'll cover general strategies, but for more pro-level strategies, listen to episode 6 and my interview with Mike Dietrich, who scored over 6 million points on Qbert. In general, Qbert should attempt to collect anything green as quickly and safely as possible, whether it is to receive the helpful benefit of the time freeze from the green ball, or stop the disruptive behavior of Slick and Sam. However, do not recklessly attempt to collect them if doing so will cause you to run into an enemy. Early in the game, there will only be two discs per stage. As you progress, that number will fluctuate, rising as high as 7 in one board, but never lower than 2, and finally settling on 5 for the rest of the game. Aside from green balls, these are your best tools to take a break from the action and get the board back under your control. Bonus points are awarded for each stage cleared. In addition, bonus points are also rewarded for any unused disc remaining on the stage. We will get into more detail on the points and settings in just a little bit. As the game progresses, three things change. The speed of the game gradually increases, the number of characters that you must deal with simultaneously increases, and the complexity of the level rules increases. In level 1, all you need to do is jump on a cube once to set it to a gold color. Subsequent jumps will never reset the color. In level 2, jumping once on a cube sets the color to a middle color. Jumping on it a second time will set it to the gold color. Subsequent jumps will never reset the color. In level 3, jumping once on a cube sets it to the gold color, however, a second jump will revert the cube back to the start color. Each subsequent jump toggles the color between the gold and start colors. In level 4, jumping once on a cube sets the color to a middle color. Jumping on it a second time will set it to the gold color. However, a third jump will revert the cube back to the middle color. Each subsequent jump toggles the color between the goal and middle colors. In level 5, and every level beyond, the first jump changes the cube to the middle color, the next jump changes it to the goal color, and the next jump changes it all the way back to the start color. This cycle repeats itself. Cubert's general strategy in level 1 and 2 will be to drop from the top of the pyramid towards the bottom and change the lower blocks as early as possible, and gradually work his way back to the top. Occasionally, cubert will have to break off of the strategy to jump on a disc to safety. From level 3 on, the strategy should be adapted to focus on getting the lower corners set to the gold color and attempting to never return to them. Start with the corner most cubes and then work your way out to the second and third layers connected to the corners. Once these cubes are converted, the center cubes of the boards are a little easier to deal with since they require less backtracking. Scoring Points are awarded for each color change to the designated color, 25 points. In level 2 and higher, changing cubes to the intermediate color, 15 points. Defeating Coily with a flying disc, 500 points. Remaining discs at the end of a stage, 50 points. Catching green balls, 100 points. Or Slick and Sam, 300 each. Bonus points are also awarded for completing a screen. Starting at 1,000 points for the first screen of level 1, and increasing by 250 points for each subsequent round completion up to 5,000 points per screen, starting with level 5, round 2, which is screen 18. We will later learn in the podcast that is almost correct, but not quite, for now it is close enough. Extra lives are granted for reaching certain scores, which are set by the machine operator. At the default settings, Kubert is awarded bonus lives at 8,000 points and every 14,000 points thereafter. Arcade operators, however, have the option to change the settings for when the first extra life is awarded and also when each additional extra life is awarded. The choices are the first extra life can be awarded anywhere from 6,000 points all the way to 11,000 points, whereas each additional extra life can be set to be awarded at anywhere from 12,000 to 17,000 points. While those higher numbers are not much of a deterrent to world class keyboard players, to your average player, They can mean the difference between 2 minutes of play and maybe 10 minutes of play, especially the setting for the first extra life. Title Screen While the different versions have some differences to the title screen, they all share the following in common. Starting in the upper right corner of the screen in green is the words credits, and right below that is the number of credits in the game. Approximately in the middle of the screen, in big yellow letters, is the word Cubert. The next line down has a copyright circle, C, in a purplish-pink color, and the year 1982 in orange, followed by D, Gottlieb, and company in green. The next line below that, also in green, says All Rights Reserved. About four lines down is the number of coins equal number of plays, with the numbers in orange and coin and play in green. And cruising right below that is our hero, Hubert writing a disc going from left to right. Once Cubert gets to the right side of the screen, another screen is displayed. This one has Cubert in the big yellow font from the previous screen, and also keeps the credits information from before. It starts by giving you a short description of the gameplay in four paragraphs, plus the extra life and each additional extra life points information in the fifth and final paragraph. Cubert hops onto each paragraph, and when he finally reaches the extra life information at the bottom. How does he get thanked for giving you all this valuable information? He gets bonked on the head with a red ball and shows a swear balloon. Levels There are many combinations of friends and foes and discs on the different levels and rounds. The first level to have all characters on the screen is level 2, round 4. Interestingly enough, the round completion bonus is not quite the add an additional 250 points to each additional level until it reaches 5,000 points that most people think it is. Even the Cubert manual has this wrong on page 4, but it has the correct information on the next page in the round progression table. What actually happens is starting at level 1, round 1, going all the way through level 4, round 4, the round completion bonus is increased by 250 points at the end of each round. However, at the end of level 5, round 1, the bonus stays at 4,750 points, which is the amount you receive for level 4, round 4. However, it does correct itself in the next round by advancing to 5,000 points and then staying at 5,000 points for all rounds after that. I have verified this by watching playthroughs of people who are much better at Qbert than I. High score screen While the following information is available in several places, Andrew Schultz's Qbert slash NES FAQ presented it best. High score messages. The arcade game has a cute ending segment for high scores. It displays a message depending on the place the player places, and even says "bye bye when you are done. It doesn't show the numeric value until you enter your initials, but with 23 different high scores, almost as odd as the extra man point values, there is always a good chance of getting your name up in light. Some of the messages are surprisingly snarky, so now would be a good time to take a short nap or to get a beverage of your choice, if Cubert high score messages aren't your thing. And now, the entire list of QBERT high score messages from 23rd to 1st. For places 23rd to 2nd, the following messages are always displayed above the row of letters used to enter your initials. Hi there! Welcome to the Noser Elite. Your ranking is, and then your ranking number, Joystick selects letters. Either button will enter, use rub to erase, use N when done. Number 23. 23, the bottom of the barrel. 22, not bad for a beginner. 21, only 20 scores to beat. Number 20, almost gotten to the teens. 19, nothing to brag about. 18, practice makes perfect. 17, it's a long way to the top. 16, now try and get serious. 15, a truly honorable position. 14, looking good out there. Lucky number 13, almost out of the teens. Number 12, you could have done worse. 11, just missed the top 10. And now for the top 10, number 10. You made the top 10 club. Number 9, a potential champion. 8, not shabby at all. Number 7, an expert with a joystick, six, an outstanding achievement, five, quite impressive actually, number four, you make it look so easy, number three, you must know something, number two, you are second only to one, and for first place, it states the following, which is different from places second through 23rd, you did it, you have upsurped all others to become the Supreme Noser. Kindly enter your initials for all to see. There is a number one in front of the message and Supreme Noser is underlined. Note the messages about how to enter your name are not shown for some reason in this case. If you are good enough, you have thirty seconds to enter your initials. So if you want, you can read the wise words Cubert has for you on the highest scoreboard before entering your initials. However, like everything else in Cubert. Entering your initials is not like in any other game. Your marker to indicate which letter you are choosing is the green time freeze ball. You are presented with four rows of six letters each, plus a short fifth row with just the letters Y and Z. Instead of moving left to right to pick a letter, you move just like in the game diagonal up or down. So if you wanted to enter your initials as BOB, you would need to move down, up, hit a button to enter B, then down, down hitting the button again for O, up, up, hit a button for B, and then finally the game auto-moves you to the word N, and hit a button there to finish. Whew, that was almost as hard as playing the game. The default arcade high score list is as follows. Number one, TJC, 3,000 points. Two, JML, 2,500. Number three, JAH, 2,000. Four, MJS, 1,750. Five ECW fifteen hundred six BLT twelve hundred fifty points seven BMW one thousand points eight DMV nine hundred fifty nine FDA nine hundred number ten LMG eight twenty five eleven DDT eight hundred number twelve JCM seven seventy five Number 13 ZAP 750, 14 NAB 725, 15 JUN 700, Number 16 HFR 675 points, Number 17 RON 650, Number 18 FXS 625, 19 DLB 600, 20 LEE 575, 21, CPB, 550, 22, WBD, 525, and finally in 23rd place, SAM, 500. As you may have noticed, several of the names are inside jokes or initials of some of the developers or people involved in the game. Glitches. Here to explain how to trigger the no enemy glitch in Qbert is multi-million point Qbert player, Kelly Tharp, who is marathon cubert longer than most players at 44 and a half hours.
0: Okay, well, the first thing I'll tell you is back in the uh, mid 1980s, a guy, a cubert champ by the name of Tom Galt, showed me this Easter egg on cubert. And uh, you can only do it at certain points in the game. You can only do it at level six, board number four, or I. Uh, for the people that don't know this, Qbert continuously repeats level nine once you get to level nine. And you can also do it on any level nine board four. So you can do it on six four and any nine four, but you can't do it on any other screen. Uh, the way you do it is you take Qbert down to the bottom left of the pyramid, just go straight down the bottom when it starts, and you wait there. You wait for Coily the snake to hatch, and he'll come over and jump on you. And I've seen it take 38 times for it to work. I've seen it work on the first time. You never know how many times it's not going to work. You'll lose a few men. But eventually, Coily will jump on you. It won't kill you, and he'll jump off, and you'll disappear. Your cubit will be on the back of the pyramid, and the only way you can see him is you'll see his nose sticking out from the side when you're changing the colors on the side of the pyramid. So once you change all the colors after you're behind the pyramid, you start the next board and you're on top of the pyramid and no enemies will come down. You just clear it board after board. There's never any enemies Um, boring and a violation of the rules to say the least. But whenever you get tired of doing that to end the trick and make the enemies come back out, you jump on a disc. And when you jump on the disc, it takes you to the top, And it keeps you there on the disc up at the top for like 15 minutes. And then you drop back down on the pyramid and it's just like regular gameplay again. And that's the Qbert trick.
1: Uh, That's actually pretty amazing. So it it actually is, you're saying, like a 15-minute wait after you jump on the disc to before the game. So it'll just sit there and just... You'll sit on yeah. the top, or can you move, or what happens in those 15 minutes?
0: No, those that entire 15 minutes, the disc is still levitating above the pyramid, like you wrote it to the top, and you, you sit on the disc for 15 minutes before it drops you back down to the top. Like, you know, when you kill Coily, it automatically drops you. It does the same thing. It just takes 15 minutes to do it.
1: Wow, that's... Uh... Yeah, because I've never seen that part of the trick, and uh, that's a very big, unusual uh, bug. Now, just out of curiosity, to your knowledge, do either Warren Davis or Jeff Lee know of this bug?
0: You know, that's a good question. As a matter of fact, I was just thinking about that before you asked it, and uh, I do not know. However, I see, uh, I see him every year at California extreme and at arcade expo. And I will be sure and ask him in March because I'm of course, I'm going in March and I'll be sure and ask him that question. And I'll let you guys know on uh, eighties arcade.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. Now, is that Warren or Jeff or both of them?
0: The guy I seen was, uh, his name was Jeff.
1: Sequels. Faster, harder, more challenging Cubert, 1983. Believing that the original game was too easy, Davis initiated development of faster, harder, more challenging Cubert, also known as F H M C Cubert, in 1983, which increased the difficulty, introduced Cuberta, and added a bonus round. However, the project was canceled, and the game never entered production. Despite this, Davis later released F H M C Cubert's ROMs onto the web and is playable in MAME. I want to personally thank Warren Davis for doing this. Cubert's Quest (1983). Gottlieb also released a pinball game, Cubert's Quest, based on the arcade version. It featured two pairs of flippers in an X formation and audio from the arcade. Gottlieb produced fewer than 900 units. Cubert's Cubes (1983 or 1984). Several video game sequels were released over the years, but did not reach the same level of success as the original. The first released, titled Cubert's Cubes with cubes spelt with a Q, shows a copyright for 1983 on its title screen, whereas the instruction manual cites a 1984 copyright and a date of 62584 on two pages of an addendum in the manual. It was manufactured by Milestar Electronics and uses the same hardware as the original. The game features Qbert, but introduces new enemies, Meltniks, Shoebops, and Ratatat. The player navigates the protagonist around a plane of cubes while avoiding enemies. In the sequel, Cuber's Cubes, the player must rotate cubes in a line to match the target sample in the top left corner. Jumping on a cube causes it to rotate, changing to cover the visible sides of the cube. The goal is to match a line of cubes to a target sample. Later levels require multiple rows to match. Despite the popularity of the franchise, the game's release was hardly noticed. Parker Brothers showcased home versions of Cubert's Cube at the Winter Consumer Electronics Show in January 1985. Cubert's Cube was ported to the ColecoVision and Atari 2600. I did find one website that listed alternative names for Cubert's Cube as Cubert 2, Tubert, and Cubes. Whether these are actually working titles or just someone's imagination is up for debate. Cubert 3, a non-arcade game, Cubert 3 for the SNES was developed by Real Time Associates and released in 1992. Jeff Lee, creator of the Qbert character, also worked on the graphics for this game. Qbert 3 features gameplay similar to the original, but like the Game Boy version, it has larger levels of varying shapes. In addition to enemies from the first game, it introduces several new enemies. Frog, with two G's, Top Hat, and Derby. Bootleg. According to the Killer List of Video Games website, the game was also sold as a bootleg version by Jutel in France. Just prior to that in the previous paragraph, they mentioned the fact that the game was licensed to Konami. They go on to say, Some of the manufactured boards were simple conversions from jutel Cubert bootleg boards, with some very basic hardware modifications. While not 100% clear if they are talking about the Japanese or US version, it appears that they are implying that some of the Konami Japanese boards were made from modified French bootleg board. Different Versions There are several different versions of Cubert. is the U.S. Set 1 and the U.S. Set 2, the Japanese version, an early test version, the Metal Yellow version, and a 7-Eleven version. There is a prototype that was discovered in 2012. All versions have the same point settings for the first extra life. The Japanese version adds the line, License to Konami on the attract mode. Another difference in the Japanese version is the default points you need to get for each additional extra life after your first extra life is 18,000 points, compared to the US version of 14,000 points. Also, the point choices for each additional extra life is different. Where the US is 12,000 to 17,000, incrementing by 1,000 points, the Japanese version starts at 14,000 and increases by 2,000 points until it reaches 24,000 points. A version in MAME listed as Early Test Version has options for coins, lives, and difficulties in different spots. However, both Extra Life settings are the same as both US versions. In the Service menu, some of the switches perform different functions. For example, in the Early Test Version, DIP switches 3 and 4 control how many plays you get for how many coins, whereas in the Release Version, Switch 3 controls free play and Switch 4 controls whether it is a cocktail or upright cabinet. Switch 5 controls the number of legs you start with and in the release version it is unused. In the test version, Switch 7 controls the difficulty but is unused in the release version and finally Switch 8 controls the game mode between upright and cocktail but it is not used in the release version. The mellow yellow version follows the Japanese version for each additional extra life point settings. It also has a yellow square graphic with the words mellow and green and the word yellow and orange. Both at a 45-degree angle, going from lower left to upper right. In the lower right corner of the square is a blue TM. Then there's a blank line. Then the word presents in green, and then there's the keyboard text that the U.S. version uses. The Mellow Yellow version has at least one intermission after Level One, Round Two. There is an intermission where there is a can of Mellow Yellow with a straw in the middle of the screen. Keyboard rides on a disc from the lower left corner of the screen, going around to the upper right of the screen and puts his nose in a straw and sort of makes a drinking noise, while the TM for trademark flashes different colors on the can. The 7-Eleven version, which is currently only available through a multi-QBert board, is similar. Mike Doyle, who discovered the code for the 7-Eleven version, discovered it while working on the multi-QBert board and testing FHMC QBert. He found that the code for the 7-Eleven version was in FHMC the whole time. The intermission is the same as Metal Yellow with graphics modified for 7 Eleven and the Dome Slurpee Cup. There is some more information on both the Metal Yellow contest and the 7 Eleven version, which may be included in a possible future episode about different versions of classic games. ROM Hacks There are at least three ROM hacks for QBERT, some more involved than others. There is one that allows you to have a black screen instead of a blue screen on the QBERT attract screen to hide the screen burn. There is also one called VBERT that makes Cuber look like a vector game, and another called P-Bert that is interesting with the description being, well, someone has the P problem, must be 18 or older. I will leave it to the listener if they want to investigate the P version. Prototype. I will start off by saying that this is going to be a longer story, so make sure you are properly hydrated with your favorite beverage of choice. First, a short description of the cabinet. You will find plenty of photos in the forum thread itself. The sides of the cabinet are bright yellow with two separate stickers on each side of the cab. The stickers are in the shape of the cab profile. They are solid red with black lines radiating out from the corner. The rest of the cab is solid black. The marquee is hand-drawn and has an earlier version of Cubert on the left, getting bonked by a gray ball with a square balloon large and centered on the marquee. Coyle is to the right of the speech balloon and is colored a grayish blue. The Coily's right are two balls falling, one red and one green. This all takes place in front of two sets of cubes, with Cubert and Coily each on their own respective set. Finally, the name Gottlieb is at the bottom of the marquee under both the swear balloon and Coily, but more towards the swear balloon. I will pass on describing the control panel as it is similar, but the artwork is different enough that everyone should read the entire thread just for the pictures alone. Back in 2012, Mo Craig, a member of the Clav Forum, found the unbelievable on eBay in Northern Illinois. He found a prototype Cubert for $450. For much of this section, I will use direct quotes as many times what was said was either perfect or ready, or paraphrasing it would lose some context. On December 11, 2012, Cool Mo Craig, who will now be called KMC going forward, dropped a bombshell in the arcade community. He starts off by saying, Unbelievably, I just scored the first Kubert machine ever made, complete with hand-drawn marquee artwork and one-off c p o artwork. The machine was purchased by a Gottlieb executive after being out on test and stored in his basement for the past thirty years. The cabinet is a nine point five out of ten. Notice that Cubert wasn't even in his final stage at this point; he still looks roughly drawn and more similar to concept drawings. he even looks different on the c p o artwork. Also, the Gottlieb trademark is above the how-to-play instructions on the left side of the CPO. On production games, it's within the instructions. The prototype cabinet has stencil-painted side art. I assume they hadn't decided on side art yet. There are no graphics on the monitor bezel, just black paint on glass. Lastly, I noticed the Gottlieb trademark on the attract screen itself. I'm pretty sure this is different than the production versions, but I have to confirm that. After nearly a full page of congratulations, KMC goes on to say, Gameplay through level 1 seems to be the same. I haven't really had time to get into it too much. I will take it to level 9, the highest, tomorrow and see if there's any different. Can someone with a keyboard tell me if the Gottlieb trademark shows up on their machine while it's in the attract mode, while it's showing the pyramid? I'm pretty sure standard keyboards don't have that. In MAME, it doesn't. In fact, this machine shows the Gottlieb trademark throughout the entire attract mode. KMC then provides pictures showing that the trademark does in fact show through the attract mode. KMC then posts a close-up of Qbert from the control panel, showing that he is a completely different Qbert than production COP. I will say that KMC made the offer to any member of CLOV in the LA area to private message him to come over and play and check it out. That is a true sign of a good person. All of this is still happening on the 11th, within a half an hour of his initial announcement. We pick up on page 6, with Mike Doyle saying, When we were working on the multi project, we came across some code variations along with PCB mounting changes. From a very small sample of machines, it looks like the genuine Sueri Marquee cabinets have their main PCBs mounted in a horizontal aspect, instead of vertically, like the vast majority. I'm betting your proto has the horizontal main PCB mounting. It'll be interesting to see inside and take notes of the differences. User Challenger then mentioned that, Today I happened to look through my copy of the latest Game Informer magazine that has an article on this game. It's an interview with the guy who developed this game and he tells about it. At this point, people are clamoring for a look inside the cabinet and as we'll see, KMC did not disappoint. Within a day, several people on the thread suggest that the cabinet may not have been a cabinet that was intended for Cubert. More information was trickling in. According to user Ripter, a lot of the early uprights have the boards orientated differently on the back door. The main reason this was changed was to make room for the filter board, which was added early in production. I don't know exactly when this was changed, but the few I have seen were all very low serials, under 500 or so. No differences in early machines are the swearing marquee, lack of filter board, and board arrangement, and Gottlieb raised logo coin doors. There may be more, but these are all I know of. I think after the first several hundred machines went out, the rest of production didn't see any changes. By December 13th, KMC had a locksmith out who was able to pick two of the locks, but the third, a barrel lock, had to be drilled. KMC says, This is the first time the cabinet has been opened since 1982. Boards are all horizontal. Looks like there was some sort of board in between the sound and power boards. Perhaps for the knocker? There is no knocker mounted anywhere in the cabinet, though. No drilled hose indicating there was one either. All of the ROMs have handwritten labels. Monitor is absolutely mint with what appears to be QBRT1 written on the crossbeam. Most of the ROMs are also labeled QBRT. Ripter notes, Well, the boards look like production boards, One thing I noticed is the large caps on the power supply are not the same as they used in production. All original ones I have seen, which is a lot of them, had tall blue caps. You are probably right about the knocker being mounted on the back door. They probably had it on a metal plate. Dude, get that battery off the board ASAP. If you want to keep it original, you can open that data sentry shell, remove the NICATs, and install a diode and lithium inside. On page 13, KMC posts some more cool images of boards and chips, including some that are labeled Warn Eye Number 1 and Warn Eye Number 2. He then posts a picture of a handwritten tag. It is first noticed that Argus is on his tag. This will be important in a few minutes. The tag reads, from top to bottom, first line, GV101. Second line, Argus. Third, JJ on the left, and on the right, an upside down 3 in a circle. Stamped in red ink on line 4 is Master, and on line 5 is Electronic. Finally, on the 6th and last line is the date 81782. KMC continues to post interior pictures, and looking down through the control panel hole, we see a piece of wood with QB1 handwritten on it. He goes on to say, Monitor is absolutely mint. He continues to show more of the inside, including the game counter. Although no one mentions it, I will say this: since this is a and possibly the only Cubert prototype made, it accumulated between 1982 and 2012, 8,298 plays on it, showing just how popular Cubert is. By page 15, and only two days after the first post, Darren F was the first person to notice that Argus was an unreleased Gottlieb game and appeared that it was assigned GV-101. He says, Looks to me like they had used this game cab for the Argus prototype, and then converted it to be their q prototype. The colors on the cab even match the color of the Argus character's costume and cape from the title screen. Joey Kuda points out, So this is the dedicated Argus cab and original side arc, in a sense. Also, since they used this cabinet as q number one, it is the original cabinet for that as well. Darren F. goes on to say, I also did some checking, pun intended, with regard to the checksums written on the EEPROMs, all the foreground and background EEPROMs have the same checksums as pretty much every known version of Qbert, so, no need to bother dumping them. The game code EPROMs, on the other hand, I thought they might match up with the set in main described as Qbert, early test version, set name Qbert TST. However, I downloaded that set and their checksums are different. So this appears to have a new unknown game code ROM set based on the checksums written on the labels. KMC mentions that I haven't even played it that much, so I can't speak to any gameplay differences. I will try to tonight. Also, can someone please check their Cubert in attract mode? This machine has a 1982 Gottlieb and Company copyright all throughout the attract mode. I'm pretty sure standard Cuberts don't do that. By the way, this makes two prototype QBert items I have acquired. Remember this? He then shows a picture of a Qbert speed up unit with the date of 7-27-83. He continues. He continues. Still got it, and I haven't found anyone willing or able to dump it. Near midnight, KMC posts multiple pictures comparing the proto and production control panels. In a minute, I will give all the differences that were noted. Many were from KMC himself, but several were noted by others in the group a little later. He starts by saying, Prototype on top? Standard keyboard on the bottom. Yes, I know it's the wrong joystick. He says, "Differences are: the game on the control panel is called at sign exclamation point pound sign question mark at sign exclamation point and not Cubert. The Gottlieb trademark exists outside of the instructions. The production keyboard has one extra instruction: stay on pyramid, only jump off to use disk. I'm assuming people are constantly jumping to their desk, so they added this." Pyramid cubes go up much higher on the left and right sides than the production version. One and two player icons are much larger on the prototype. Characters are shaded much more on the production art. Obviously, Cubert himself is much different. Also, his name is spelled Cubert with a dash on the prototype and Cubert with an asterisk on the production. The entire panel itself is about an inch deeper. He goes on to say, Just notice that disc. Is spelled D-I-S-C on the prototype and D-I-S-K on the production piece. Also, the prototype says hopping instead of jumping on the final instruction. The prototype has less shadow on characters. The disc is rotated 90 degrees counterclockwise on the prototype. On the prototype, a white shadow is not under the disc, like there is on the production version. On page 17, Lions Arcade mentions, they also square up the instructions and who's who's, If you look on the prototype, it's crooked on both sides like wacko or something, but on the release version, they made them nice and level. KMC says, Actually, I think that's from being sloppily applied at a slight angle. Lyons replies, If you look close, you can see that the cubes in the background don't line up straight though. Look at the three triangles created under the instruction box. They get slightly larger from left to right because the box is slanted slightly. It's more extreme too on the who's who's box. Someone must have decided they wanted to make it look kind of zany, so it's crooked. The joystick arrows aren't level at the top either, and has the crazy name. Then someone sane stepped in, squared everything up, got rid of some of the cubes, and put the cubert name on it instead of the symbols. I personally agree with Lion's Arcade. Only three days later, KMC shows the underside of the control panel, the joystick, and the top of the cabinet. This shows how there are punch holes available on both the left and right sides for buttons, and on the left and right side for the power switch on top of the cabinet. You can also see the scoring marks used to determine the 45 degree angle to mount the joystick. The next day, KMC says, I played all the way through level 9 last night. This version seems much harder. Slick started appearing within the first 5 seconds of level 2-1, and continued to appear on every single board following within the first 5 seconds as well. Watching two playthroughs, I can verify that at least Sam didn't come out until at least 16 seconds, and as late as 30 seconds. While KMC says Slick, I saw Sam first, but that could be for any number of reasons. KMC goes on to say, Looks to be the initials and names of designer and programmers. I'll post pics shortly. Even though KMC added four additional scores, it appears from his pics that at least three of the names from the production version are missing, or one of them was spot 23. They are, Number 7, BMW at 1000, Number 8, DMV at 950 and number 9 FDA at 900 are all missing on the prototype high scoreboard. BLT is off by 4, as it should be with KMC scores, going from number 6 to number 10. However, number 11 is LMG, which is originally number 10 in the production boards, going down only one spot when it should be down 4 spots to number 14. Very odd. On January 20th, 2013, KMC posts pictures of close-ups of the marquee and his two Qberts side by side. He says, Put my prototype next to my standard Qbert. Surprisingly, there are differences. The monitor is closer to the glass bezel and the cabinet itself is deeper by about an inch and back on the prototype. He goes on to say Shot a video of both machines being powered up on at the exact same time. Hello I'm turned on, sounds pretty cool in stereo. Some additional differences in the prototype. As I previously pointed out, the copyright stays on the screen the entire track mode. The two demo boards that are shown during the track mode are swapped in order, and there is no title screen on the prototype. Unfortunately, KMC's video no longer appears to be available. Finally, almost a year and a half later, on April 9th, 2014, the last oddity is pointed out. The control panel pictured in the manual is a weird combination of the prototype control panel and the standard control panel to make another variation of the control panel. To close out the wild story of prototype Kubert, KMC posts pictures showing us he got Warren Davis to sign the underlip of the control panel. The perfect spot for the signature, as you can't see it unless you look up from underneath the control panel. Other media appearances In nineteen eighty three, Kubert was adapted into an animated cartoon as part of CBS's Saturday Supercade, which features segments based on video game characters from the golden age of arcade games. Saturday Supercade was produced by Ruby Spears Productions, the q segments running between 1983 and 1984. The show is set in a U.S. 1950s era town called Q-Berg, and stars q as a high school student, altered to include arms and hands. In addition, he wears a jacket and sneakers. He also has the ability to shoot black projectiles from his nose, which he calls Slippy-Doo, to make his enemies slip. The flying disc he uses in the game makes an appearance in two episodes. Characters frequently say puns to add the letter Q to words. Aside from Qbert and the known game villains, the cartoon also includes new characters similar to Qbert in appearance and naming. I have found quite a few characters mentioned, but like many cartoons, there are many unnamed background Kubergians. Here is a list of characters that I have found. As mentioned a minute ago, of course, Kubert and all the villains appear. On Kubert's side, we have QT, Qbert's girlfriend, Q-Bit, Qbert's little brother, Qball, and q both Qbert's friends, and to round out the known Qs, it's Q-Val. On Coily's side, we have his girlfriend Viper, his mom Serpentine, his dad Sidewinder, and I found mention of a younger sister, but did not have time to watch all 19 episodes to check this. Maybe one of my loyal listeners can help me verify this. Kubert, Coilet, Ugg, Slick, and Sam appear in the 2012 Disney computer animated film Wreck-It Ralph. They startle as homeless video game characters living in Game Central Station after the game was unplugged and taken out a lit wax arcade. Ralph gives them a cherry from Pac-Man as a gesture of kindness. After Ralph takes Markowitz's uniform and tappers, he accidentally trips over Kubert on the way to Hero's Duty. This leads Kubert to go to Fix-It Felix Jr., to Warn Felix that Ralph has gone turbo. In that scene, Felix apparently speaks Qbertese. At the end of the film, Ralph and Felix decide to let Cubert, Coily, Ugg, Slick, Sam, and the generic homeless video game characters into Fix Felix Jr., suggesting that they help out in the bonus levels where Coily, Ugg, Slick, Sam, and the generic video game characters assist Ralph in wrecking the building while Cubert assists Felix in fixing it. In 2014, Qbert made a cameo appearance in the Radio Shack Super Bowl 48 commercial, The 80s Called. Qbert makes another appearance in Sony's film Pixels, which was released on July 24, 2015. In the movie, Qbert is given to the main characters as a trophy by the aliens for defeating Pac Man. He then accompanies the team on its last mission. In the end, he randomly transforms into the fictional female character Lady Lisa of the fictional video game Dojo Quest. After a victory against the aliens. This version of Qbert is capable of speaking English, and his iconic speech bubble only appears when he swears. In popular culture, Qbert is seen being played in the 1984 film Moscow and the Hudson, starring Robin Williams. The 1993 PC role playing game Ultima Underworld 2 Labyrinth of Worlds features a segment where the player has to solve a pyramid puzzle as an homage to Qbert. In the 2009 action-adventure game Ghostbusters, the video game, a Kubert arcade cabinet can be seen in the Ghostbusters HQ. However, the game is merely decoration and not playable. More recently, the game or its characters have been referenced in several animated TV series. In a Family Guy episode, Stewie reflects on how it was easier being q roommate and an animation of him on the game board is shown. On the Futuram episode, Anthology of Interest 2, he is one of the aliens that attacked to invade Earth in a segment of video game parodies. The Simpsons episode In the Name of the Grandfather, Marge, Bart and Lisa hop around the stones of the giant Causeway in a game of Cubert. The Robot Chicken episode Sushi Rolls is in general a Street Fighter parody, but in the end M Bison is shown inside the game Cubert. In Mad TV, James Bond Reply All, Cubert is seen in the MI6 lab. Finally, Qbert also appeared on The Battlefield in South Park, Imagination Land, Episode 3. Back in 2007, Lenore Edmund of EvilMadScientist.com and her son made a Qbert quilt. This thing has to be seen to be believed. It looks just like a screenshot out of a Qbert game. They even went so far as to play Qbert on an emulator to get the colors right. They made the quilt replicating the first screen of Qbert and even got the fact right that only a red ball and coilier on the first screen. Also, They put the two discs in the right spot, too. Obviously, Lenora and her son are fans of the little orange guy. Market Impact If you go to flyers.arcade-museum.com and search for Qbert, you will find an advertisement flyer distributed at Gottlieb showcasing several of the licensed tie-in products by Parker Brothers, Kenner, and others and claiming over 125 licensed products. After counting the total number of items on the flyer, and adding in the one additional item not listed but pictured, I came up with a grand total of 119 items. Almost, Gottlieb. Almost. So, given that many of the products would be made with multiple character versions, plus there were some products not listed, it is obvious that Gottlieb was making a big push for Qbert. I don't know that all the listed products were produced, but most of them were definitely geared to kids and teens. Oftentimes, Qbert's likeness was slightly adjusted to serve a specific product. The character's likeness appears on various items, including coloring books, sleeping bags, board games, wind-up toys, and stuffed animals. Some of the other items are birthday cards, a kid's food tray, an awesome Cubert bank that I want to get my hands on, and a terrifying Halloween costume. You may remember from episode one that Burger Time had a 1983 series Slurpee video game cup. Well, guess what? Cubert joined the fun too with his own cup in the series. One interesting note. Both Coily and Ugg are miscolored, both being orange instead of their normal purple. In 1983, Parker Brothers released a Cubert board game and a Cubert card game. In the board game, two players play with the object of the game to collect the most number of pegs that are in a Cubert pyramid game board. Each player plays once as Cubert and once as the villains of the game. In the card game, two to four players play with the object to build a Cubert pyramid worth more points than your opponent. One of the most unusual items I found was a frisbee. Now you may be thinking, what is so unusual about a frisbee? Well, for one of the frisbees, nothing is out of the ordinary. It is a small white disc with a picture of Cubert on a disc on it and the Cubert logo below it. However, the second frisbee starts out normal. It's round and yellow and has a decal of the disc and Cubert, so it looks like a disc from the game. Then it gets weird. Locked in place through a hole in the top of the frisbee, is yours truly, Qbert as a 3D action figure riding on top of the Frisbee. Watching video on YouTube of people throwing it, it looks to fly much better than one would expect. I'm just surprised the little guy doesn't get dizzy riding that thing. Kubert became one of the most merchandised arcade games behind Pac-Man. Although according to John Seller's book Arcade Fever, the fan's guide to the golden age of video games, it was not nearly as successful as that franchise or Donkey Kong. Most likely, this was in large part due to the North American video game crash of 1983. World Records. Before I go into world records, an explanation between tournament and marathon settings is needed. The difference is, in tournament mode, you only get 5 cubers to play, whereas in marathon mode, it is exactly like it sounds, in that you play until you run out of cubers, whether that is 6, 60, or 600. On November 28th, 1983, Rob Gerhardt scored a record score of 33,273,520 points in a Qbert marathon. He held it for almost 30 years until George Lewis from Brooklyn, New York played one game of Qbert for 84 hours and 48 minutes on February 14th through February 18th, 2013, at Richie Knuckles Arcade in Flemington, New Jersey. He scored 37,163,080 points. Orcade has Rick Carter listed with what appears to be a marathon score of twenty-eight million eight hundred eighty-nine thousand and sixty points, set on December fourteenth, two thousand ten, also performed at Richie Knuckles Arcade. Dora self, credited by Guinness World Records as the oldest competitive female gamer, set the tournament record score of one million one hundred twelve thousand three hundred points for Cubert in nineteen eighty four at the game of fifty-eight. Her record was surpassed by Drew Gones on June twenty seventh, nineteen eighty seven with a score of 2,222,220. Doris continually attempted to regain the record until her passing in 2006. On November 18, 2012, George Lutz broke the Cuber Tournament World Record Live at the Kong Off 2 event at the 1-Up Arcade and Bar in Denver, Colorado. Lutz scored 3,930,090 points in just under 8 hours, earning 1.5 million points on his first life. Lute's score was verified by Twin Galaxies. Unfortunately, the video ends at the score of 3.7 million, although that is 1.5 million points over Drew Gowen's previous record. Arcade shows. Coming up March 1st through the 3rd is the Louisville Arcade Expo. I'll be there this year and hope to have a t-shirt with the podcast logo on the back. Stop and say hi if you see me around. I've attended the show multiple times and can't recommend it enough. They have tournaments and over 100 games, both arcade and pinball, set on free play. They'll also have classic consoles and classic computers to try. You can find out more at www.louisvillearcade.com. Competitive Tournaments MGL38 just wrapped up, and along with that, the World Championship of Esports 2. This year, the WCE2 spanned MGL35 through MGL38, and had 33 total games. Many never played in MGL or WCE before. Yours truly placed 19th out of a total of 86 players. Listener feedback. From listener Rob B, he says, Bob, I miss all these old games. Love the podcast. Thanks, Rob. I like these games too. From Tim P, regarding Burger Time, be sure to check out episode one on Burger Time. One of my favorites. This was a nice history of the game. Well, Tim, I have to say BurgerTime's one of my favorites, too. We even got Roger Blair, world record holder on BurgerTime, giving us feedback. He says, Hey, thanks for the shoutouts. Roger Blair here. There was a link to this at Twin Galaxies. Good cast. BurgerTime opened up a whole new world for me, having more fun than I ever have doing the score-chasing thing. Good work, Bob. Thanks, Roger. And as a fellow high-score chaser, I couldn't agree with you more. On Twitter, at DarrenTheFold says, It was a fun listen. I'm a subscriber. Keep it up. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate everybody listening. Also on Twitter, at 80s Nostalgia says, listening now. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, 80s Nostalgia. We've got our first five-star review on iTunes from Red Sleeves. Red says, great podcast. Can't wait to hear more. This is a great podcast to listen to. It's still fairly new, and there's not a ton of episodes. But the content varies between deep dives into various classic arcade games and interviews with people important to the arcade community. The only downside is I want more of it. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Red Sleeves, and you can be sure that I'll continue both the deep dives and interviews in upcoming episodes. Shoutouts I'd like to thank my wife, Dr. Jennifer Ann Morrow, for finding the information on the QBERT quilt. A thank you to Mike Dietrich for choosing QBERT in my 200th download contest and for doing the interview about q in Episode 6. And also a big thank you to Kelly Tharp for telling us how to get the No Enemies glitch. Did I miss something important or get a fact wrong? Let me know. All feedback is appreciated. Until next episode, this is Bob Johnson saying, always have a quarter ready. You never know where you'll find the next game.
0: Thank you for listening to the 80s Arcade Podcast. We want to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at 80 sarcadepod on Facebook at 80s Arcade Podcast and on the web at 80sArcadePodcast.com.